Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are offered the land as an inheritance, as a gift, and there are conditions to the gift. And the condition is that we will follow the commandments. And what are those commandments that are delineated here in particular is we give of our bounty, our harvest from the land um, to sustain the central institution, that of the temple and of the priesthood. And every third year, a full tenth of our yield is set aside and given to those who have not gotten access to the wealth of the land. The fatherless, the stranger, the widow, the orphan, and the ancient world, these are the definitions of the most vulnerable. We could pick other words if we wanted to. You know, fill in the blank. The homeless, who, right? Like, who, you know, we, we might have a different sense of who that is. When the, when the Torah uses these terms, the Torah is delineating the most vulnerable people in the ancient Near East. The fatherless, meaning there's no adult to protect you. There's no adult male head of household to protect you and to provide for you. So that's the fatherless. The widow has no male head of household to protect her. The widow, the orphan, and who else? The stranger. Our core narrative, our foundational myth is that we were strangers here in our homeland. That is a very interesting way to craft the narrative about one's people and its connection to the land. Generations of rabbis have understood that this is part of the core identity of the Jewish people. The core identity is that we don't have a land from which we emerge and which naturally becomes our nation state, our, you know, the place where we found our society. That is not our understanding. Our understanding is that we are wandering, we are homeless, and we have to cross over, right? Avraham, there, there's arguments about who is meant by my ancestor was a wandering uh, Aramean. Um, in general, folks point to Avraham, that he is the one who leaves Aram, he's from Aram, and he crosses over. So he's an Ivri, right? We, we translate that as a Hebrew, but really Avor is to cross, to cross over. Abraham is a crosser over. He crosses over literally the river to come to Canaan, but in general, he's a crosser over. That's, that's what we call ourselves, crossers over, right? So we are Ivrim. We are those who cross over. We are not those who got born here and we're so fantastic that this is our land, right? This is not a Jewish story. The Jewish story is we crossed over from somewhere else and we were strangers here. And our claim to the land is 100% conditional. And part, and it's articulated very clearly here, part of the way that we're able to claim a right to stay on the land and to enjoy the benefits of the, the land that is flowing with milk and honey. When we say milk and honey, remember we're talking about goat milk and we're talking about date honey. Two ways of expressing that the land can support semi-nomadic pastoralists, you know, with their flocks and um, agriculture with date palms. So there's enough water. Uh, and in the ancient areas, that's a big deal. So flowing with milk and honey means a land that will yield um, good things that, so that you can thrive and, and flourish in the land. That, so it's code for a land that um, is fertile and where you will be able to live a good um, life of being sated. So what, what entitles us, it says it right here, what entitles us to that land is that we share that bounty. We share that wealth with those who don't have. That is the condition. If we don't, the end of this Parsha is brutally, brutally clear about what's going to happen if we don't. So um, 
So what does it what does it mean to have an, a myth of origin that does not have us be indigenous? Let's look at our scholar, Dr. Rachel Edelman says throughout history, the imminent connection of a people to its land has most often entailed a claim of indigenousness. For example, uh, and then she goes into Greek mythology and she says, but we are not an indigenous people native to the land, but a nation whose origins reside in exile and whose fate is exile. If we fail to uphold the covenant, exile serves as bookends, though not the hoped for ultimate end of our collective narrative. And she says, based on rabbinic tradition, the great commentator Rashi identifies the patriarch as Jacob, but it's more likely our, our guy Avraham, who is the crosser over. The possession of the land is contingent on a period of oppression and exile. Unlike the Athenians, we emerge as a people from a common ancestor, the wandering Aramean, who has no claim to the land other than God's conditional promise that undergirds the terms of the covenant at Sinai. Now then, if you will obey me faithfully and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples, for the land is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Obeying the divine will as a condition of chosenness for this purpose is reiterated in this week's Torah reading. Um, as we just saw, today Adonai has obtained your agreement to be God's treasured people as God promised you and to keep God's commandments. The land is a tenuous gift that is conditional upon loyalty to the covenant, and exile is a collective consequence for transgression. But there's another dimension to the promise, schooled as strangers in a land not their own, descendants of the wandering Aramean, the way we tell our history serves as the basis for a higher ethic. As it says throughout the Torah, you shall not wrong a stranger or oppress the stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. It is precisely the consciousness of being alien with its concomitant sensitivity to the other that ironically grants the right to dwell in the land. The short history we recite again and again upon recalling the exodus at Passover and offering the first fruits, fruits reminds us of this tenuous relationship to the land, a contingent gift from God. What raises us to, quote, chosenness and confers a claim to that gift is the mandate of compassion for the stranger in our midst and remembering that we were once and on an existential level may always be strangers in a strange land. We are called upon to link living in the land with compassion for and just behavior towards those strangers who dwell among us. I feel like this is a really important teaching for right now. Um, for our time. I think it's a really, really important teaching. I think we have so forgotten as Americans that unless you are Indian, you are not indigenous, you white people. <laughs> you are not indigenous to this land. This land, first of all, wasn't even a gift conditional, right? This land, we just took it. <laughs> right, white Europeans just came and took it um, and from the indigenous people who were here and, you know, largely, of course, massacred and destroyed those uh, indigenous cultures and languages and traditions. Um, and so, so Bert is saying even Native Americans came here from somewhere else, for sure. But we, but we have no, we have no, claim to indigenous indigenousness of any kind. So of course, yeah, this wasn't populated at one point and they came over the, you know, straits and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Yeah, I get it. But, but we have forgotten as Americans that we have no claim to this. Jews would say our claim to this is if we build a nation where everyone has access to the wealth of this country, we only have claim to this as long as we build a nation that is based on justice and compassion and Torah would say righteousness. And that conversation 
we're, we're studying Torah, but really, right, when we study Torah, particularly Deuteronomy, we're talking, we're talking about what does it mean to build a society, a civilization based in righteousness and in justice and in compassion and in fair treatment, protection of, not just fair treatment, protection of the stranger and those who are vulnerable, we need to be having that conversation. We as Jews understand that because that's what it means to study Torah for us. We just saw it. We just read it. Um, that's what studying Torah means is talking about what kind of a society we're building. And I feel like that, that is the conversation that we need to be having in this country right now. The conversation. It has gotten so out of control and I think we can feel everything sliding towards chaos, everything sliding towards it feeling like it's coming unglued and undone. And um, it's because we've allowed it to become so disparate with the, the gap between those who enjoy any kind of claim um, to, you know, to this, to, to being here and doing well. Um, and those who are completely left out uh, and in some ways shut out of that very system. All right. So what does this mean for Israelis claim on Israel today? I don't know. I don't know. That's really for Israelis to decide. Um, I honestly don't know. Obviously, there's a relationship for them, um, for the Jewish people, to a sense of Israel being our homeland, but if you look at our foundational texts, they tell us, right, that we're not from there, and it's completely conditional. So there are some within the, certainly the ultra-Orthodox Jewish world who want to say that's exactly right. We lost it, and we don't deserve it, and we're not going to get it back, and we shouldn't have it back unless and until um, Mashiach comes, God comes, and rebuilds the temple and takes us back in love and forgives us. But we have no business being there until then. Um, that's, I mean, that's one view of having come from there, but having no claim, uh, because only God can grant that gift. Um, others, of course, you know, say that we need a homeland because of anti-Semitism. That if it weren't for anti-Semitism, well, first of all, none of us are in Israel, you'll notice. So, <laughs> right, it's like, not that everybody wants to live there. Most Jews don't want to live there, but because of anti-Semitism, a lot of people argue whether, you know, whatever our claim to that being our homeland, it's that that's where we can be safe. That's where um, Jewish sovereignty uh, will protect us from the the very real um, dangers of anti-Semitism. Um. Mehmet says the question applies to many contemporary nations today, meaning a claim to the land. Is that what you're referencing, Mehmet? Well, if I look at certain nations that I know here around Europe and, and Turkey, most governing um, uh, uh, groups or people are not in, indigenous from, from that region. They came from somewhere else originally. Right, right. So the Torah's approach to being a people, being a nation, applies to many nations around the world. Whether they want to. It's, it's, yeah, it's an ethical thing. It's an ethical question. So Bob reminds us the fate of indigenous peoples all over the world are grim, <laughs> right? From Australia to Greenland to Canada, etc. cetera, um, right? Like, because what colonizers have to do, right, is disempower kill, displace, whatever, the folks who are living there, right? We see this happening in villages all over Africa now, right? That um, people want that land. They want the minerals for their for our cell phones. And so what do you do? You create a situation that displaces the local population so that nobody has a claim to the land, and then you swoop in and take the resources, right? Jody. You know, I was – the last part that of – the reading where it says, um, as promised, God's treasured people who shall observe all the divine commandments and that God will set you in fame and renown and renown and glory high above all other nations that God has made. Is that not 
chosen, a little bit of language where people interpret that to be we are chosen? Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to check if I was interpreting it correctly. Yes. Torah Torah has no problem with the language of chosenness, right? Oh, okay. Torah has no problem with that. We have a problem with that, but Torah has no problem with that because it's, we were chosen to enter into a deal. That's how we're chosen. It's very, very clear. Mm. Nothing about us is special. Nothing. What results in us being amsegula, a treasured people, God's treasured people, chosen, lifted above everybody else? The only thing that makes that so is our following of this covenant. Which we've yet to do. Which we have yet to do. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Um, so, you know, what makes what makes us special is that we were given this offer and we accepted the offer. We won't be special. We will be less than less than special should we turn our back on the covenant and break the covenant. Um, and Dreyfus is saying, I always thought as an American that our identity was all about welcoming the stranger in. Under the current administration, I wonder what the current generation is being taught as our national identity. So we have, I believe, a clash of identity happening. That's part of the rage and the gun-toting murder that's happening right now in our streets is a clash exactly of that fundamental understandings of what it means to be American. I think you're 100% right uh, that... Right. Many of us, many of us are fighting constantly for an America that we know was built by immigrants and that we want America to be the place that welcomes uh, immigrants and that we are the great. What was it? What is it used to be called? The melting pot that we were the great melting pot. That was that was I know for my parents generation and my grandparents, that was a source of deep pride. And being American is that we were a melting pot, that anybody could come from anywhere and have an opportunity to truly be American here. I think a lot of us uh, Jews grew up with that, with that story, right? With that, with that sense of our identity as Americans and as America. Um, and, and we're very, very proud of that. America. And, um, but there's another narrative and there's another identity, right? That says those people are foreigners. Those people are strangers and they don't belong here. They need to stay in their own country and leave us alone. This country is for us. Whoever us is. I just love that us is somehow like someone who didn't come here on a ship. <laughs> you know, or, um, but whatever. So, um, so yes, there's a major clash right now, I believe, in the core understanding, the narrative, the myth, the origin myth um, that defines who we are as Americans. I think we're, we're seeing and we're seeing the incredible fear um, that and anger that that clash, right, is, is producing. We're, and it's, it's really sad to me. Um, that we're here and, but people call me naive and say, well, it's an, it was inevitable. Like, you know, this has been brewing for a super long time. And yes, of course that's true. But, um, but I guess I am on some level a bit naive and, and I'm just, I'm super, super sad that, that there's this much hatred and this much xenophobia and this much, denial of reality in terms of we all got here from somewhere else. And um, I mean that, um, and again, that, that doesn't mean we can't have different opinions about immigration policy. That's not what I'm talking about. We can argue immigration policy and what's good policy and bad policy. That's fine. But, but that core identity, that core narrative that says, therefore I can carry a gun and protect this building from y'all. <laughs> right it's just it's, it's nuts um can i ask another take us back a little farther on this one, one second because it to me the whole idea here is that the land does not belong to us which is the idea of first fruits which really is the underpinning for the all of the rest of the moral and the ethical stuff that that follows 
And giving first fruits is a process of saying, wait a minute, I've just gotten food, I've just harvested whatever, and the first thing I need to do is to acknowledge that I didn't make it. I didn't make the tomato. I didn't make the banana, okay? I didn't make these things grow. Maybe I helped them to grow, and that I owe something, which I think is the first fruits, which, which, which has always seemed to me to be extremely, extremely powerful as an idea. If one accepts that idea, then one can also accept the idea of there being morality and conditionality in terms of being on the land because it's not your land. Right. So it's not only I didn't make this tomato, it's that the tomato doesn't belong to me. The, the ground that the tomato grew in isn't mine, right? The earth is mine, says Adonai, right? The, the earth belongs to God, all of it. We get to use it. We get to benefit from it only if we share it. If we share from the wealth that we are given from God's land that's lent to us, then we get to keep enjoying it. And if not, it's pretty grim. Chapter 28 of Deuteronomy is pretty clear and it's pretty grim. Judith? Isn't this the whole principle of tikkun olam? We are just helpers. We are helpers in improving. We are not in charge. We are not the owners. We help. We do our part. So it's related. I mean, tikkun. Yes. Repair comes from another whole set of stuff, which is the Jewish mystics understanding of how the universe comes into uh, being, which is that God's light pours into vessels that can't hold it. The vessels shatter and the, the shards of those vessels are the physical universe our job is to release the spark in each one of those and to liberate that spark so it goes back to the source. Um, and in that sense, we are doing tikkun. We are repairing. So there, there are different concepts, but certainly both are about keeping us from our natural inclination towards arrogance, our natural inclination towards, I did this. It's all mine. It's all mine. Uh, and I can do with it whatever I want. Um, tikkun is about no you can't <laughs> you have to be about repair you don't you don't get to right to continue to allow sparks of the divine to be trapped uh, in the world around us you, it's your job your sole purpose is to liberate those sparks by interacting with the world in such a way that you that you honor eating as sacred by saying a blessing, right? By saying a blessing after you eat, by honoring what eating, by being careful about what we eat, right? And we're allowed to eat some things and not eat other things. We're thoughtful about it. We're not just animals who sit and just eat. Um, so it's in relationship to the world that we can liberate the sparks, only in relationship to the world, which is why we don't have Jewish ascetics, right? We don't have people retiring to Jewish monasteries, that's a, it's an oxymoron, a Jewish monastery, right? We, because withdrawal from the world is not the way forward for Jews. It's about interacting with the world in a way that sanctifies our experience of everything physical uh, in this world. With the world and with the people in the world, especially. Absolutely. Especially the people, of course. Absolutely. Um, and Melinda saying, I think most people aren't as good at actually practicing what their religion teaches as they are at selectively using those teachings to justify what they want to do. 100%, which is why we have Deuteronomy here, <laughs> right? Because that's what was happening under Josiah, right? That's what was happening when the Deuteronomist was writing, was exactly what you just said, is that the people were picking and choosing what they wanted to keep of Torah, they were picking and choosing what they thought was their religion and what they were supposed to do according to that religion to justify what they wanted to do, 100%, which is why Deuteronomy was written, um, is because that's human nature. That is our inclination. Religious texts generally, um, wisdom, traditions of all kind, those texts all come to tell us ways um, to save us from ourselves for the most part. All right, somebody wants to talk, Bert, who's, who wants to talk? Michael. Michael. I'm just wondering, does Deuteronomy raise the fascinating but very difficult question 
of the difference between the father generation or mother generation uh, and the child generation because the children who are born here don't have the uh, I crossed the Atlantic and became a pioneer uh, the the ideology and the and the psychology of the of the first generation is really very very different from the uh, from the psychology of the of the child generation and we have we have so many people now claiming their rights as autochthons as as people of who were born in the states and who therefore have a kind of identity that is very different from the identity of the English or the Estonian uh, emigres who came here. And I'm just wondering whether Deuteronomy raises this clash of generations dimension. It's a good question. I would have to think about it. But, um, but remember that, that Deuteronomy is written by people who have been Israelite for a long time. Yeah. So it is the it is the the born there people who are writing this text to other people who were born there. They use the language of my father, right? The father generation. They use the language. They use the they use the the symbol, the myth of Moses and the people crossing in who are not born there, in order to make the point. So it's. It's the children's generation, right? The folks who were born there, it, it, they are writing the text, but putting it in the parent generation mode to communicate the message. So there seems to be something for the, yes, the Deuteronomist that wants to invoke the sense of the parent generation that came here from somewhere else. Deuteronomy wants to evoke that. Deuteronomy is is pulling on that. It's calling on that in order to deliver this message by and for the children who were born here. If that makes any sense, that was a little tangled. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, and because it's a choice, right? To put it in the mouth of Moses to the children who weren't born here, they're still in the desert. To put all of this in the mouth of Moses, talking to them, those who would cross over, those who would come here. Mm. Here, meaning Israel, um, right? That that's a choice, and so I think the Deuteronomist is definitely consciously making that choice. And the issue stay, of course, forever. Right to 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 invoke the to evoke and invoke the the parent generation, Sarah. I think the fact that we Jews read about our wandering out of Egypt, every generation before us is one that we experience during the year. So that means that we're not just superficially here in the 200,000s. We're, our roots are way back and we're connected there. And that's why it's important, and that's why we read about it. So, Sarah, what does that give us? What? What does that give us as a people, do you think? It gives us an identity that is not just superficially now. It is an identity that came out of slavery in Egypt, that stood at the mountain with Moses. That's all part of us. So I, what I hear you saying is that having a thick Jewish identity, it, it grants us in some way a sense of gravitas yes. that just floating around, you know, succeeding or, or accumulating more, right, that is not, is not that, right, that, that there's something about this Jewish identity and the tie to the generations that did come out of Egypt in you know how I feel about that, um, but, right? That and and those who worked and on whose shoulders we stand. That that gives us uh, Lisa saying stability and responsibility, right? So um, having that sense of history, that sense of an arc, also of destiny. Um, I would say you know moving from Exodus to redemption, right? Is uh and and then then having the opportunity to build a society of righteousness and justice. Um, 
that's freedom for Jews, right? It's, it's not freedom from, like you're free to do whatever you want. You're free from control. You're free from authority. You're free from, you know, laws. It, that's not Jewish, right? What Judaism says freedom is the ability to build a civilization based on godliness. That, that's freedom. That's what freedom's for. That's what the Exodus was about. That's why we tell the story over and over and over. And Micha Goodman points out, what do we have a story about? There's, there's three sections. There's, there's Egypt, there's the desert, and there's the promised land. Three parts of our story. We have a celebration, a holiday about coming out of slavery. That's, of course, Pesach, right? We have a holiday about being in the desert, Sukkot, and right? Um, so we, we have festivals and we, we have these festivals and he says, but one third of our mythology is unrepresented by a festival. There's no holiday where we conquered the promised land. There's no holiday where Joshua brings the troops in and takes city after city. There's no triumphal Jewish holiday saying we're here. We won. It's ours. Let's eat. That holiday is missing, right? Because Micha says part of the whole teaching of this business, um, and particularly of Deuteronomy, is be very careful that you don't become Egypt because it's very likely. I took you out of Egypt. And he says Moshe spends the rest of his career after the Exodus, Moshe spends the rest of his career trying to take Egypt out of the people. That, that, that Mo, Moses is an Egyptian, right? He was an Egyptian prince. He's Egyptian royalty. And he spends the rest of his life with this ornery, fetchy people trying to take Egypt out of these people. Um, and he has this beautiful thing. What does he say? He has this beautiful thing where he says um, uh, that there's, there's two anxieties that we hear in Torah. Constantly we hear the people saying they want to go back to Egypt, right? Because the desert's too scary. The desert's too hard because you don't have security in the desert. Will the mana fall? Will there be water? Are we going to get attacked by Amalek again, right? So in the desert, you're lacking security. In Egypt, you lack liberty. Which are you more afraid of? And that this is what the, this is what, the the whole thing is about which are we which are we more afraid of not having liberty or not having security and that's the tension um, that we see constantly in the narrative how do we create a successful society that's what Deuteronomy's talking about how do we create a successful society that's not Egypt you know how do we do that he says Micha says the challenge of Egypt is that of a powerful civilization the desert is the challenge of no civilization. Egypt is the challenge of a powerful civilization. The desert is the challenge of no civilization. Those are the two things our people come through. And now the question of the Deuteronomists is, so how are you going to do that? And here's the instruction manual. Deuteronomy is the instruction manual about how you build a society that is successful, that is not worshiping power, that is not worshiping the powerful Right? In Egypt, who did they worship? Pharaoh. They worshiped Pharaoh. They worshiped the king. And so as a god. And so the whole job of the Israelite project is to build a successful society. Because it's good to be successful. We're Jews. Like it's 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 good to be a success, right? There's nothing wrong with that. As long as it's a success that is just. And not only can you not worship the powerful. You are to protect the powerless. That is how you earn the right to be successful on the land, is to not only not worship the powerful, but to protect and see yourself as responsible for the powerless. Judah? I think this also has a great psychological idea with it. And I'm always amazed looking at the... Oh, shoot. I'm sorry. It's the day for it. Uh, I'm always amazed looking at 
Jewish history, the tremendous psychological strengths that I see in the history from a people who were not schooled in psychology, but sensed it and have it in the writing. I think most of us are inclined to hold on to something we know, as painful as it might be, rather than try something different because we're afraid of it. Uh, I've seen it in relationships with people. They'll stay with a terrible marriage because they just are afraid of what they'll have to go through otherwise. And this conflict between staying where you have security or going where you have insecurity is part of human psychology, I think. And, you know, Toro's very clear that we don't love going there. Um, you know, we don't love going to that place of no security, which is why we have to move into a sukkah for a week every year. <laughs> right. And as Richard Siegel just said, the enemy you know right. is better than the enemy you don't know. Thank you, Richard. Diana? Challenge. I think I unmuted. Um, you know, I think I think this is why it's interesting to go back uh, to these texts. Um, one of the first Hartman lectures from a few weeks ago, the one that I joined on empathy, I also think it really ties in because it was so such an emphasis on recalling our own vulnerability as the oppressed. And I think as human beings, we also span two trajectories where we know the oppressed, but it's so easy for the oppressed to become the oppressor. And historically, in our country, our immigration history has not been kumbaya, let's welcome the strangers. It has been a violent, messy battle between the oppressed and the oppressors, with the oppressed becoming the oppressors the moment they have access to resources and power. So historically, our country, that's not new to this administration at all. It's been the history of our country, and it's tied into capitalism and class and that struggle of resources. So it seems like, to me, the beauty of going back to this text and having this conversation is the reminder that it's an ongoing struggle between those two forces that the human beings have, and it must be quite old that, you know, <laughs> that it's not new to us. Right. Right, we tend to think of a lot of stuff as, oh, look at this insight that we have. Like, you know, yeah. the abuser becomes, the abuse becomes the abuser. Look at us, we're all. Yeah, and Audre Lorde, remember Audre Lorde, she, she, you know, in speaking about racial rights and everything else, she says the, you know, the master's tools can't be used to undo the master's house. And I think that's, you know, the ultimate reminder for us. Nice. So, um, Along those lines, Micha Goodman um, said in his lecture that Moshe, in this speech to the people, is, is provoking two anxieties in the people. One is about going back to, right, you'll, you'll be punished like Egypt, you know, or you'll go, you'll go back to Egypt. So the anxiety um, of Egypt is the fear of someone else's power right, the Egyptians' power. And he said the other anxiety Moses is invoking in this speech, though, is, um, is the fear of your own power. What can happen to you when you become powerful? So to your point, that, that's exactly what he says the Deuteronomist is doing in putting this speech in Moshe's mouth, is to say, you know, one fear is the fear of Egypt, someone else who's powerful and you were oppressed. Like, that's a legit fear. Um, the other fear that Moshe is trying to invoke is what happens when you become powerful? What can happen to you? And that you can become, in a, in a sense, and we tend to become oppressors. Um, and, and according to Deuteronomy, you become an oppressor by ignoring the suffering. It's not even that you're perpetrating anything. You're not necessarily responsible for someone else's poverty or the fact that their crop failed. Um, it's that you, you don't have a right to ignore that. You must see them as your responsibility and you must share out of your wealth with those who don't have. That is not optional. Well, it is optional. And if you fail, and if you don't do it, chapter 28 of this book is very clear, right? And the language used, Micha points out, which I never noticed before, that the language used in Deuteronomy 28 in some of these verses um, is the language exactly that we see in the plagues of Egypt. 
It'll be dark. You'll plant mm -hmm. crops, but you won't get to eat them because the locusts will come and eat your crops, right? And so we see Deber, Shechin, Barad. We see all of this language that we saw with the plagues. And it's on purpose that the Deuteronomist is saying, if you become Egypt because you are now powerful, if you worship power and worship the powerful, then exactly what happened, what, what was delivered by me, says God, upon the Egyptians will be delivered by me upon you. The only thing that makes you different is your choice to understand everybody as being part of your responsibility. And, and notice, it's not addressed to poor people. <laughs> this text is addressed to land-owning white male Israelites, right? This, this text is addressed to people who have access to wealth and power, to land and the, the wealth that comes with it. And um, that that's who it's addressed to. And that's us, right? The poor, not, it doesn't talk about them in terms of any kind of discussion about how they got there, why they got there, what does it mean to be poor? Nothing. It's addressed to people with resources, saying, they are your responsibility. You don't get to separate yourself from their suffering and from their reality. And you only get to have what you have if you share with those who don't, which is why Jews vote for all kinds of taxes. It's this, it's this old that we understand if we have, we have an obligation to give. Um, and, and I'm not saying taxes is the only way to do that. I'm not suggesting that. Lots of people would argue you give privately, right, um, and and support those institutions that will take care of the poor. I'm not saying it's just through taxation. I'm saying it's not it's not unusual to have Jews voting in large numbers to tax themselves because we get it. So rabbis can put this point in their sermons, but they can't comment on politics, asks Dana Fine. It's a very interesting very interesting point, Dana. Um, I gave a sermon, I think I told this group, I gave a sermon a few weeks ago on Deuteronomy when we had talked about the king and all the limits on the king's power. Um, and I talked about this whole idea that the Deuteronomist, this, the whole book of Deuteronomy is there to talk to us about politics and talk to us about how we're supposed to use our status as free people who are not slaves in Egypt. We are to use that freedom to build a just and equitable society based on compassion and responsibility. Don't you know, I got a long email about how some, I don't come to synagogue to hear politics. Oh, and I, I concluded with, and therefore you need to vote in November, right? That Torah understands that we have an obligation to participate in a democracy since we are free citizens and able to vote. We, it's up to us to build that society that reflects for us whatever that is, whatever your vote is. But we have an obligation to build that society, and in a free, in a, in a free democracy, that means voting. Don't you know I got a whole thing that I was talking politics from the BIMA. And I haven't responded, I responded, but... Then she responded again <laughs> that, you know, that she loves my teaching, but, but that I have no right to be speaking about politics in the synagogue. I haven't responded um, with the longer email that I need to write, which is, have you looked at the book of Deuteronomy? <laughs> like, open the Torah. We're, we've been in it for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. This book that's all about politics. You can't open the Torah. Love the stranger for you were strangers in the land of Egypt is recited 36 times. You, how, how do you separate that from politics? Like, I'm not going to talk partisan politics from the Bima. Of course not. But if you think Judaism has no relationship to politics, you haven't opened the Torah recently. So anyway, so, so, so I agree with you a hundred percent that it's, it is political. It has to be. If you're talking about building human societies, you're talking about politics. You can't not, right? If you're talking about what Torah wants us to do, giving tithes, taking care of the vulnerable, um, returning your neighbor's lost ox, whatever it is, it's about building society, putting a parapet around your roof so somebody doesn't fall off. That's on you. If they fall off your roof, it's on you. 
<laughs> right? So building society is by definition politics. So vote in November, people. What can I tell you? Um, it, it's our obligation. It is absolutely our obligation, according to Torah, to vote. And, uh, and it is our obligation to vote for a society that does not worship power. And that does not worship the powerful. That is Egypt. That is Egypt. We don't build pyramids. <laughs> we don't know where Moshe's buried. That's on purpose. Micha Goodman says Moshe has to work all the time. And through his death, he's teaching the people to not be attached to death, not to glorify and celebrate death. Pharaoh, those, those pyramids are Pharaoh's tomb. That's Pharaoh's death monument so that Pharaoh gets to live forever. The pyramids ensure mummification ensures that Pharaoh will live forever. He becomes part of the cosmos and the soul, blah, 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 right? So, and Moshe is all about the teachings about this guy, Moshe, the, the most miracle worker ever in our, you know, mythic history is that we don't even know where he's buried. <laughs> there's no, there's no, not only is there no pyramid, we're not supposed to be worshiping death. We're not supposed to be worshiping power. And Moshe could be seen as being seriously powerful. And so Torah goes to great lengths to make sure that we are not doing Egypt. Um, is that why Deuteronomy 26 says not to deposit your tithing with the dead? Yes, because there was ancestor worship. There was all kinds of right attachment to death and the dead. Um, that was, that's not Jewish. It's not Israelite. That's not what the Israelites are supposed to be doing. The Israelites are supposed to be worshiping the living God and being, being respectful of every human being who's created in the image of that living God. And, Every human being is created in that image, every single one, including the ones you don't want to see and you don't want to be responsible for and you don't want to have to take care of. They, too, are created in the image of the divine. And so that that's um, it's an important teaching, I think, that that Micha brings to Diana's point that we're constantly needing to be reminded of. And like Sarah said, our connection to that story of having nothing and being strangers and being oppressed, not so that we turn around and do it, Dafka, the opposite. We reenact that sacred history every single year so that we don't become arrogant. We don't become people filled with hubris, thinking I have all this because I deserve it or I achieved it. No, you were given an opportunity and Good, good for you that you made good on that opportunity. Now, here are your obligations out of that if you want to keep it. Dana? So my question is, who are we responsible for? Are we responsible for our own community, our own civilization? Because these directions, even if a stranger comes, they're coming into our little abode, our area where we live. So does this mean this behavior is for the whole world. I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, it's really just for the Israelites and for anything they do with their business and any stranger that comes in or, you know, it's not for a grander picture. So, so you're, you're touching for me on a much larger topic. I'd really like to do a class on it at some point. I really would. Um, is it really just for Israel or is there a vision in a lot of these texts that on that day, right? On that day, what, what do we what do we say in Alenu all the time? There will be one God and God's name will be one. There is there is evidence throughout our texts that this was a vision for the entire world. It would start with Israel, but eventually Israel would be or lagoyim, a light unto the nations. And nations would see how fantastic Israel was doing it, which never happened, by the way, um, how great Israel was doing it. And therefore, they would want to emulate that. And, and on that day, God will be one and God's name will be one, meaning everybody will come to worship Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh and understand 
the demands of building this kind of a society. So on the one hand, yes, in a simple way, it's only directed to Israel, right? We're not, we're not a proselytizing people. It's our self-understanding. That's what we tell ourselves. But there are writers who look to these texts and say, sorry, people, there is very much evidence that this was meant to be a bigger vision. And it was meant to be for the whole world. I, I personally don't have a problem with that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have a problem proselytizing. <laughs> I don't have a problem with that at all. Like to, to preach justice and equity and compassion and responsibility for the vulnerable and the stranger. I just don't have a problem trying to convert people to that. <laughs> I just don't. They don't need to be Jewish. I'm just saying, right? Like the, the ideas here, I would love to see perpetuated and, and you know, right, and, and preached more broadly. Um, any national leader worth their salt for me right, is going to be about this stuff um, in our country. So, um, so anyway, it's a, it's a much longer conversation, but, but I think Torah is very clear. It has to start with us, right, being, sharing our resources with those of us, including the stranger, who's you, right, that, that we have to start by taking care of us, that, that, if we could just figure that out, that would be great, but we can't, we haven't, <laughs> right? We, we haven't even figured that out, much less the rest of the world. <laughs> we haven't even figured out how to take care of our own, uh, our own poor and our own vulnerable. But halavai, speedily and in our day, it should happen that we, that we figure it out. That's what Torah demands is that we continue to have the conversation. We continue to seriously investigate um, the ways that we're either contributing to a society that's reflective of these values or not. Um, and that, that's our obligation. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.